Hey, this is Brent Jensen, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. Okay, today so we're going to have some Halloween fun. I've got my man Jamie Blaine on the line from Nashville, and he's celebrating the recent launch of his new book, Mercy Never Sleeps. So folks, go out and get yourself a copy. Jamie's a really talented writer. He tells it from the heart, and I am an extremely big fan of his work. Jamie, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Oh, my brother, it's always a pleasure to be here. I've been excited about this. And you you, you got to put some of that uh, whatever vocal effect you got on me that makes me sound all deep, all, all deep and sexy like you. Because you'll be all suave over there, and I'll be like, I really like Kiss. Ace Frehley's my favorite. It's all, it's all smoke and mirrors, my friend. Uh, well, we'll send some of that smoke and mirrors my way, man. It's all me. All right. All right, so uh, I'm excited about what we're going to do today. I think it's pretty fun. But before we get into that, um, I know that your new book just recently came out last month. Again, it's called Mercy Never Sleeps. What else are you working on right now? Well, I just finished a third book that I, I, I'm not at liberty to talk a lot about, which is always fun to say because it sounds mysterious. Yeah. Um, you know, when the truth behind the scenes is a lot more boring. <laughs> so uh, if, you, if you can sound mysterious, always, always go for mysterious. Yeah, yeah uh, but anyway... Um, so just wrapping that up, actually, uh, uh, this week, and hopefully get back to a lot more uh, of the of the music writing, rock writing, um, doing some stuff for Bass Guitar Magazine in the cool. UK. You know, some uh, hopefully some stuff for uh, for mm. guitar, some stuff for drummer. Anyway, yeah, just doing that, working with some uh, working with some acts, hoping to uh, to catch some stuff with Guns and Roses when they come past uh, past your next. Oh, month. good man. So they're yeah. uh, they're here Sunday. We're gonna go and check them out. Yeah, you know this this um, this reunion run has just been really amazing. That they have pulled it off so yeah. well, more than anybody expected. It, it it really makes me eager to hear the uh, the whole story down the road of, of what's actually going on behind the scenes to pull those personalities together. Yeah. And I, if, if there's been a more successful reunion in rock history, I don't I, I don't know Aerosmith maybe I don't yeah. know. It's just been great and, and eager to see what they're going to do next. I'm, you know, I'm happy for them. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm going to admit on the record that I'm very surprised that this whole thing came about. I'll also admit that I wasn't a big fan of it coming about, but um, you know, I like what I see. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy for the guys. You, you always want to cheer them on, and uh, it looks like, you know, like you said, I mean, they're super successful. This is their second time coming through Toronto on this particular tour, so I think they're doing great. And, and yeah, more power to them. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think we said last time I was on the part of the fun of doing these shows is to name drop a little bit. Yeah, and, and you know, give anybody that's listening, I guess, a little bit, whatever glimpse you get behind the scenes. But yeah, um, you know, I've I've worked, uh, done some stuff with Duff, and, and I say stop an interview, and um, worked some with Frank, and spent a few days with the camp the mm-hmm. last time they were here. Uh, you know, not that I was a super insider, but uh, you know, a lot more access than I thought I would have gotten um, from those guys, and. Man, everything I saw was so super professional, uh-huh. and everybody was so nice. That's great. Um, yeah, everybody, uh, you know, top to bottom uh, on the crew, guys in the band, Slash and 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 Frank and and Duff, and you know, of course, you know, I didn't cross paths with Axel, but uh, you know, he showed up on time and did a great show. Awesome. So I think Duff is sort of running the camp. I guess he's, I think he's sort of the guy they elected and said, you know. Duff, he's a solid business guy. He's got a good head on his shoulders. Let's just kind of let him 
sail the ship here and yeah and uh, and he's done a great job and so. yeah it, it's funny because had you told me that in 1992 i probably would have laughed in your face <laughs> just a remarkable turnaround for duff mckagan right oh my gosh yeah yeah like almost I, unbelievable yeah but you know i think duff has always been that guy always very i mean you know they all had their their substance problems and mm-hmm. um but duff seemed like he really pulled out of it quickly disciplined guy yeah uh, good head you know good head on his shoulders very nice guy very engaging guy you know one of the one of the most fun interviews i've ever done and, and i hope you know someday you get to have him on your show because he's just he's a lot of fun yeah a lot of fun great conversationalist i, so, I yeah i you know from what i've heard about him i think that he would be amenable to that i um and again i i i'm i'm proud of the guy i've, I've read his book and and uh you know that 92 through say 95 skid that he had he completely recovered from that and then some i mean he went and got his finance degree from university he just completely turned his life around and and uh you know it's just a good news story all around it's nice to see yeah yeah very stable guy so yeah i hope someday you have him on man he's uh he's a very down-to-earth guy and, and very enthusiastic about whatever you want to talk to him about punk or rock or country and Mm-hmm. And, and he knows he knows his stuff. So yeah, well, I'll probably reach out to him soon. We'll see if we can get him on the show. Yeah, man. All right. So, Mr. Blaine, what are we going to do with this Halloween theme? I've uh, got some ideas. You know, we 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 kicked around some band names. Kiss obviously comes to the forefront. We'll talk about maybe Alice Cooper. Um, you know, Marilyn Manson. You've, you've got some in mind, I think, too. Yeah. You know, as I was thinking about this, you and I are. are we both have a psychology background, which um, I find is a is very helpful and fun in thinking about uh, rock music and, and and its effects upon people and, and the perception and and it certainly can tie in with Halloween because you you to me I think about the perception that people had like when we were kids and and then how that changes over the years and and you do sort of find out how much of it was just a show or just an act or just a costume or mm-hmm. just. You know, uh, especially with Kiss. You know, Kiss were, Kiss is sort of the ultimate Halloween band, I guess you could say. Oh yeah. And uh, I mean, gosh, I mean, how much money have Kiss made off of Halloween? You know. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> that would... yeah. yeah, Simmons, I'm sure is rubbing his hands together as we speak right now, anticipating the Halloween season. Oh man. You know, it was. They had this perception when when they were when we were kids and. You know, how great, what a great marketing tool it is to scare parents and, mm-hmm. and sort of be seen as these guys. But, you know, then we all grow up and we find out that it's actually, you know, two Jewish businessmen and <laughs> a couple of, you know, and a, and a Catholic and a Lutheran from the Bronx. That's right. So, yeah. And, and, but that's the, <laughs> but, you know, for me, that's the far more interesting twist. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's so true. I, I love it. What, what are your memories of Kiss and Halloween as a kid? Well, the, those two were, it was almost like a hand-in-glove fit, right? If you're a, a Kiss fan, I was an eight-year-old Kiss fan, and, and, you know, your first Halloween costume choice, obviously, is going to be, you know, a Kiss member. And, yeah. uh, obviously, I was a huge uh, Ace Fraley fan, so, you know, oh, yeah. he, he was... But it, it's funny, because we... And I'm sure a lot of people have done this, you know? It just, it seems like... Um, almost a rite of passage as a as a kid if you like music to be you know dressing up as 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 kiss i at halloween i've done it a million times um 
I always thought like, you know, the easiest makeup, because you always had the makeup challenges and the resource challenges, right? <laughs> so yeah. makeup challenges, you got to go Paul Stanley. You know, I, yeah. w- I would have picked Ace Fraley, but the, the makeup is very difficult uh, just because you needed the silver thing. Simmons was my, you know, second or third choice makeup, a little bit intricate. And then Peter Chris, I just, I was never, I was never interested in being Peter Chris. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because that was pretty much my exact same experience ace was was my favorite guy in the band by far but his makeup was just too hard i know that's true (laughs) yeah i mean it was so symmetrical and all the silver and and you had to draw both sides just right it was so much easier to just sort of draw a star over one of your eyes and you know what's really funny about that is he was probably the guy with the biggest substance abuse issues in the in the band you know when we're and they put on their own makeup and i always wondered how the hell does he get his makeup on every night you know knowing what he does (laughs) <laughs> you know that's that's a great question i've never thought about that yeah because because not only is he the you know had the biggest substance abuse problems you know ace's attitude was you know he's the guy that's going to show up late mm-hmm. he's the guy that's gonna i mean it's you know he said it himself he was he was lazy back in the day yeah so you know not only did those guys have to put on the makeup for the show a lot of times they they had to put it on twice a day because they had to put it on for you know, any, any PR, yeah. any appearances. Yep. Um, and they've all said it take them, you know, at least 45 minutes to an hour to put on. So oh, man, God, yeah. yeah. If, if you and I ever interview Ace Fraley in the future again, I, I, you know, I talked to him once, but I wish I would have asked him, you know, next time we talk to him, we should ask him I, I, how I, in the world, how did you put that makeup on day in, day out? I want to know. I've read stories about him, you know, passing out with it and with it still on and him waking up in the morning, still with the makeup on. <laughs> can't be great for your skin but uh you know i want but here's what's that no i didn't mean to interrupt you i'll say here's the thing have you ever seen a picture um you know from the 70s where the makeup looked bad no that's what i mean like you you know i mean either i wouldn't have been surprised if you saw you know kiss live in in houston in 77 and frelly's makeup was all uneven and you know it looked like a drunk guy applied it because he was a drunk guy right but it was perfect like it was symmetrically perfect and like i said it wasn't it wasn't like paul stanley's he just didn't have to do the star like it was it was symmetrical and it had to line up and it was pretty intricate so i don't know how he did that yeah that's 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 one of the great great kiss questions through the ages i don't know we'll find um, out you know man i mean you know next week Thousands and thousands of people who aren't even Kiss fans will dress up like Kiss for Halloween. Mm-hmm. So, and their makeup you know, won't that, be nearly as good, and they'll be, no, and they'll I, be sober. <laughs> yeah, but uh, and, and you know, music-wise, for me, and I was I was thinking about this last week. Uh, I mean, obviously, you've got you know God of Thunder. Mm-hmm. Other than that, not a whole lot of really Halloweenish tracks. No, um, you know, it was mostly Ladies' Room and Love Gun and, and you know stuff like that. So. Yeah. No, I was thinking with God of Thunder, you know, is the obvious choice. I, I was thinking about um, a song that used to freak me out a little bit when I was a kid was Almost Human. Remember that Simmons tune on Love? Yeah, Pat? yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a bit, you know, he was making all those crazy noises with his, you know, grunting and stuff at the beginning of the song. Um, and then, you know, uh, the whole Elder record was kind of scary just in a different way, obviously. <laughs> but. Yeah, <laughs> but I found that with Kiss, you know, I, I thought about this just before we got started a little bit. Um, things like War Machine and Rock and Roll Hell were kind of a little bit more intense, just because yes. they weren't trying to be 
you know, as kind of air quote scary, you know, like when yeah. they, a couple of years later they did uh, Unholy on the Revenge record and it just, the scariness was implied and it was kind of manufactured for me. I just kind of, you know, shrugged my shoulders and said, meh. Well, I think in the, you know, in their seventies period, so much of their audience, uh, you know, when the Love Gun Alive to uh, the solo records, you know, so much of their audience then was little kids. Mm-hmm. And, and and so it was very cartoonish, very fantastical, very, you know, sort of Hanna-Barb, Hanna, what is it, Hanna-Barbera, the, the, mm. the cartoon, you yeah. know. And, and so I think that was so much part of it. Uh, that, that, that's where, that was a lot of the buy-in point. And then, of course, you know, that audience got older. And, um, you know, and, and if we're talking to Halloween characters, of course, most of it's going to be based off Gene Simmons' had the perfect character for that. Very comic book, very horror movie. Mm-hmm. And then Ace was second because he was sort of the spaceman. Um, you know, the cat and the sort of lover guy, that, you know, that didn't play so much. So so those songs were not as not as Halloween geared, I guess you would say. Exactly. And, you know, on, on that topic of dressing up as Kiss, um, you know, what we used to do to kind of, you know, cut corners or, or be a little bit sly was we used to dress up as Kiss when we were older with like Salvation Army suits from the Dress to Kill cover. So, you know, so you didn't have to, you didn't have to try to like emulate their crazy costumes. You know, you could just put the makeup on your face and get like a wig, a black wig, and then wear a crappy old suit with like a, you know, a crappy tie that, that didn't fit. And then, uh, you know, you could just say, well, it's the Dress to Kill cover. You know, it's kind of a cop out, but it still worked. Yeah, you're, you're right, man. I, I can remember going to Kiss shows in the 90s and, and seeing tons of people doing the dress to kill thing because it was yeah. so much easier. You get a thrift store suit, put on the makeup and a wig, and you're there. Exactly. Yeah. So I would see, you know, at Kiss shows, I was impressed uh, on the other end of that spectrum because I would see people with the full out costumes, uh, you know, circa 77, and, and particularly like Simmons and Frelly. And I wondered where they got these things because they were, you know, it, it looked like they were made to spec and they were they were impressive. Yeah. Well, I think it's the, because they inspire that sort of fanaticism that, you know, like a Star Trek or a Star Wars even, mm-hmm. where you've, you've got people that will, um, you know, just spend thousands of dollars. Yeah. Uh, because that's how much they enjoy it and that's how much, you know, pleasure this band has given to their life. Yeah. Uh, you know, they'll spend that money. So yeah, I, I'm not I'm not at that level of, of band. In fact, I think I've only dressed up as Kiss maybe twice in my life. But yeah. you know, the, I think the, the the part of that for guys like me and you is, I mean, my gosh, how many hours and hours have I spent thinking about Kiss and their effect upon music? And, oh yeah, you know the, the 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 interpersonal dynamics of those guys in the band, and yeah. you know, and just just fun. They're fun to think about. Yeah. So. Yeah, I used to stare at those records and you know and, and and just analyze them and look for things that you know were or were not in there like the intellectual community looked at things like Nabokov and Shakespeare you know <laughs> Oh my gosh man that is the perfect way to put that It's yeah. true I just you know as a little kid like that's just what I did so I mean hats off to Kiss Yeah there's probably a soundbite in there somewhere you know I I studied Kiss I studied the Kiss Alive 2 gatefold you know the way a grad student would study Nietzsche or something and still do Oh I know I know (laughs) (laughs) I I don't mind uh, making that known (laughs) You know if if we talk about Kiss we gotta talk about Alice Cooper Yes Maybe Alice Cooper is is the 
Maybe he's the greatest Halloween rock act of all time. I don't know. What do you think? Um, Billion Dollar Babies, 1973. That, that, that record had to be considered avant-garde at that time, especially, you know, the last three tunes on the album, I Love the Dead. Yeah. And, but um, the creepiest, you know, for me, point of that record, Jamie, was Donovan singing that piece in Billion Dollar Babies where, yeah. you know, I'm so scared your little head will fall off in my hands, you know? <laughs> this was the guy yeah. who sang Sunshine Superman, Mellow Yellow, and, you know, that was his shtick, but then he comes in and sings a tune with Alice Cooper about, you know, a baby's head falling off, and it was just like, holy shit. Yeah, I mean, Cooper was, he wasn't just pushing the envelope, he just, there was no envelope. Exactly. So, but at the same time, he could be so marketable, and I think, that was probably a little more scary. You know, he, he understood that if nobody is talking about me or knows who I am, that that's not, you know, that, that's not, that doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So he, he had songs that worked on the radio. He had songs that, that were marketable. And on the same time, just had these really, really twisted, uh, you know, very horror movie schlock, but just really bizarre yeah. Uh, in a way that, that Kiss never did. Kiss was always more meat and potatoes rock. Yeah. You know, uh, where, where Cooper was much more out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, much more. So. Yeah and, yeah. and I mean, they were out there at the same time, virtually. Um, you know, Kiss, I think, played it safe. Whereas Cooper, you know, like you said, there was no, like, he just, he just, he just, he did what he wanted. Like, it was, you know, he was a menace to society in a lot of people's minds. I think he knew that's what he wanted to be, you know, yeah. I, you know, in the grand scheme of that, you know, probably going back to, I don't know, Sinatra, certainly Elvis and, you know, and, and little Richard and all of that. Yeah. They, they knew that there was a lot of market value in scaring parents. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, if we're going to talk about Halloween rock, you know, you, you have to go back to like screaming Jay Hawkins, who was doing the whole coffin thing in the, in the fifties. Yeah. You know, that's somebody that Alice Cooper is always going to talk about as being a, a big influence. And yeah, yeah. Alice was, is interesting to see his, I really liked his career in the eighties. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a lot of interesting stuff in here. And I, and I almost, the songs to me were, they'd gotten a little more campy and I think he yeah. sort of settled down and maybe quit drinking as much. And, and I think a little bit of the cat was out of the bag and it's like, okay, this is actually really a, a pretty nice guy who plays golf and, you know, is, you know, is it's a character that he's playing. So I liked Poison. I liked Poison a lot. I liked, uh, I liked, loved this, the theme he did from the Friday the 13th movie. I thought that was just really sort of clever. Uh, but by that time, you're right. When you say avant-garde, I think he was really making that statement in the 70s and Cooper was buddies with Warhol. Yes. So I think he definitely had much more of an artistic approach than, you know, somebody like Kiss, not taking anything away from Kiss. No, and and, and obviously it was very bright individual as well. You know, he wasn't just some derelict out there, you know, acting like a clown. He um he had a plan. He's a very smart guy. Yeah, and and isn't that sort of the scarier twist? You know, as far as parents being against these guys that Gene Simmons and Alice Cooper are actually very intelligent people mm -hmm. you know, and are intelligent and articulate people. Yeah. So. Yeah. You know, with respect to Alice Cooper, I think that, you know, he was he was the last guy who really kind of got everybody's attention. And, and in the 80s, a lot of that stuff went on with bands like Lizzie Borden and stuff like that. But they didn't I don't think they really kind of matched the level of Alice Cooper in terms of intensity until 
You know, someone oh, sure. named uh, uh, Marilyn Manson came along. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I I think um, I think Manson sort of doubled down on the Cooper and Kiss formula, especially yes. the Cooper, because because he was such an art guy and and again a very articulate guy. Yeah. And you know, but I guess by the time he came along in the '90s, uh, there wasn't as much of the curtain there. You know, you'd you'd already had the beginnings of the internet. Things were mm-hmm. a little more upfront. So I think out of the box, you sort of understood that this is a guy named Brian Warner who's, you know, it's a character that he's playing on stage. Mm-hmm. You know, we're in the 70s and, and, and even some of the 80s, it was much more hysteria drawn. You know, there was there was this great rumor that, you know, Alice Cooper would pass a cup through the audience and everybody would spit in it and then he would drink it. And, <laughs> and you know, that he was chopping chickens' heads off on stage. And, yes. Uh, you know, Wait. throwing live puppies into the audience so they could tear them to shreds. And, and, and uh, you know, whether that was just sort of rumors that started virally or whether he was smart enough PR-wise to go, this would be a great rumor to start. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, did it scare people? Did it scare parents? Was it unsettling? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, so, But by the time Manson came along, I think, you know, he understood that, that – People saw more behind the curtain and understood. So he had to up his ante, but I, I think he was very successful in upsetting parents. I, I just feel like, you know, through the 80s, there was a lot of um, Cooper clones, you know. Uh, but Manson was the one guy for me who really kind of raised the bar a little bit, almost in the same way that Slipknot did with their first album. It was like, whoa. Yeah. You know, these guys aren't, it's not as schlocky as, you know, what we've seen previously. It's, this is, these guys are actually pretty intense. I think when you, when you like mention bands like Lizzie Borden, and mm-hmm. I, I think in the eighties, there was sort of that revival of, you know, a lot of scary movies were, were kind of coming back and, mm-hmm. but, but they, they very much sort of had that cartoon humor camp <laughs> element, yeah. you know, what, what they were doing with the, you know, Friday the 13th four and five and, and, and of course nightmare and on elm street yeah yeah and and hair metal bands and so once you got to the 90s everything kind of got darker yes and and more intense yeah. just like you say it and you had these bands like uh like manson and zombie and slipknot mm-hmm. and and dan and danzig that we'll talk about here in a minute and and i, I it was less campy and cartoony and much more legitimately frightening and unsettling i think i completely agree yeah i think in the 80s there was an implied sense of jokiness you know and kind of you know camp as you say and so even you know the the friday the 13th franchise was you know i think that the first movie came out in like 77 or 78 something like that but then through the 80s it kind of got really watered down you know and and, oh yeah and it got silly and i think a lot of that silliness of the 80s got kind of washed away in the 90s and then there was just a, an absolute you know culturally there was an absolute reversal of that idea and 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 you know you could say that with grunge you know nirvana came in even in the 80s you know you think about those bands that were supposed to be you know intimidating like venom and celtic frost and and those bands they're still you'd watch that and just it was just silly you know it's yeah absolutely there was a a level of authenticity you know that um that I think was was also sort of progressing as uh, video 
Mm-hmm. You know, the, the 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 video medium was was much more able to to convey, you know, sort of the right message. It was not as cheap and campy and yeah you know there was a lot of that metal stuff that really looked sort of like a, a thriller ripoff so and once you got to manson he i think he was artistic enough to to do the visuals that were unsettling but you know to me what it all comes back to is you got to have the songs and he had the songs too yes he did yeah i think uh you know beautiful you know the sweet dreams cover right there was very creepy for me you know? Very creepy. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that worked on every level. Oh yeah, <laughs> there's no question. And uh, yeah. you know, even things like beautiful people. You know, very very intense. I covered a, a Slipknot Manson show. I guess it was late last year. Yeah. For um, classic rock and metal hammer, and it, it's it's interesting to see these guys still going and and to see how that perspective. How do you pull that off twenty years later? Yeah. And uh, Slipknot. Uh, eh, you know, I mean, I was impressed with the visuals, impressed by the musicianship. Mm-hmm. It was it was obviously a show, you know, and we know by now that those guys are, you know, they're, they're all pretty decent and settled guys with kids behind the scenes. But, you know, the Manson part was it. I remember as I wrote that uh, that review up, it was really difficult to put into words because he was really disengaged from the audience. He was very just like he gave off this impression he was so bored with the whole thing and he didn't want to be there but somehow it kind of worked really and it made it even more unsettling yeah it was a it was a really weird show have you ever met and him? no i you know here's here's the thing i think about I, and i've i've really studied his career and i, th- I think about this what this guy has done and the interesting point with manson was of course when he did bowling for columbine he was blamed for columbine and, but what he says is is so right on the money and mm-hmm. so articulate that it shocked a lot of people. Yep. And it really sort of turned his career in a different direction. And and at that time he was uh, he was doing a, a, a tour and speaking on college campuses. And I, I remember seeing that and and thinking, okay, this could be a really interesting turn for this guy. He he could go more into the yeah, I'm actually. You know, you should be scared. Parents should be scared because I'm actually very intelligent and very articulate. Mm-hmm. And and now I'm going to use that. You know, I, I thought at the time the scariest thing he could have done was take off the makeup, put on a polo shirt, and, you know, go teach college or something. Yeah. You know, go be a college speaker. Yeah. Uh, because, wow, this guy's not just, a, a, you know, a Halloween freak. He, he's not just the shock rocker. He's a really smart and well-spoken guy. But, you know, Brent, something happened in there. And I, I don't know if it was a bad divorce. I don't know if he had, you know, back into substance abuse problems or whatever. But he decided that that, that was not the image he wanted to put out there. And he very much went back into the, into the Marilyn Manson persona and is still there. And I don't know if he's disappointed about that or, or conflicted about that or I don't know, man. Yeah. That Columbine bit, I think, is the, you know, that segment that he speaks on, you know, about America's kind of consumption and fear. You know, that's my favorite part of that entire movie. He's a very articulate guy. And, uh, you know, I think that scares a lot of people even more. But um, I did read an article in Rolling Stone, and I like that they, you know, will send their reporters out to spend extended amounts of time with people, you know, like a week or, you know, Fridays, yeah. whatever it is and and they seem to kind of really get the the real you know kind of deal from their yeah. subjects but uh 
uh, Manson came across as a very troubled, very dark, very nihilistic person in a very yeah. grim and dark way. And that wasn't, that wasn't too long ago. Yeah, something happened. I, I don't know. I guess I was always disappointed mm-hmm. that he didn't take the articulate football and run with it. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I guess as a career move, that's what I wanted to see him do. Mm-hmm. You know, and it wasn't just that he's smart. You know, in the Columbine piece, I think what was really unsettling is how compassionate the guy was. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Michael Moore sort of, he, he segued it with, he's got these preachers who are just railing and spitting and just, mm-hmm. you know, saying all of these things that are just terrible. And then you have Manson saying, you know, hey, what would you say to the kids of Columbine? And he says, I wouldn't say anything to them. I would listen to them. He said, because that's what these kids need. They don't need to be preached to or talked to anymore. They just need somebody to hear them out. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that was very shocking to a lot of people, not only because it was smart, because it was a very compassionate thing to say, mm-hmm. and it was a very, emotionally, it was it was right on the money. And that just sort of shut everybody up. You couldn't say anything else after that, because that was the right response. Right. So, to me, that's always, you know, when you talk about Manson's history, that's always, to me, the most interesting moment in what he did after that. And, I mean, I'll give it to the guy. He's still making great music. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his last two records, I thought, were really good. But, you know, I, I just got this impression seeing the guy that he's very conflicted and very troubled with that. And um, I don't know, Brent. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a, it's an interesting story there because I've heard stories of, about Manson from people I knew that worked on his crew and, and different things mm-hmm. that, that he could be a very, a very kind person, a very sweet person, the kind of guy who would go out into the streets and give money to hungry people and I don't know if you would say that he would go down the same path as, as a hero of his like Alice Cooper, who, mm-hmm. you know, who turned into sort of a very humanitarian kind of guy and, and worked with a lot of charity organizations and, and sort of mellowed out as he got older while, you know, at the same time still performing shock rock. I don't know. I, I feel like Manson's uh, not going to go down that path. No, I don't either. And I don't know if that's what I was so conflicted at this show because part of me was like, absolutely stick to it. You know, do, never become what we would expect or hope. Always mm-hmm. be what you, you know, that's the shocking part. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but there was another part that you, you kind of want to see him, I don't know, grow past that or, or become something different. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, man. It was a very weird show, and I left there feeling very weird about it and, and not sure how to articulate it. And I think that would make him happy at some point. Oh, I, you absolutely know? it would, yeah. Yeah, if, if, if he read my review of that show, uh, you know, uh, Metal Hammer and Classic Rock, I think he would probably have been happy about that. Well, he probably did. He confused everybody in that in that stadium. Mm. It wasn't a stadium, it was an arena. But, yeah, he, he confused everybody there. Well, you know, uh, there's, there's <laughs> something, something to say about Mystique, right? Yeah, there's something to say about that. So, you know, when you talk about Manson, I think somebody who followed that path, who did it a lot more like Alice Cooper, mm. is Rob Zombie. Yeah. Uh, I think Zombie very much differentiated himself between this is the character I play on stage and this is this is you know sort of what I'm going for mm-hmm. and but the guy I am off stage is you know can be very soft spoken he's a vegetarian he's you know mm-hmm. kind of a family guy um, he seems to have made peace with that path a lot better than Manson so yeah I think so too I think that Manson is an exception when we're talking about all these people you know Danzig included I think that Manson kind of stands out because he's particularly you know I, I hate to say it but he's he's, he's a, a damaged conflicted individual not you know not like any of these other guys 
I don't think he's made peace with his path. And no, you know, and I, I when we were talking about doing this, I I got to tell you, as, as much as Kiss is Halloween and Alice Cooper and all that, mm-hmm. I you know the one I was the most excited to talk about was Danzig, because I I, I kind of it's fun to me to sort of look at an act at their apex. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at that guy sort of at his peak, mm-hmm. I think you could make an argument he was legitimately the scariest frontman of all time. Wow, that's a, I, that's a bold statement. Well, I mean, think about this. This this is this is the way I always looked at it. When you had acts like Venom or Man of War yeah. or you know, or or even the, the rockers from the 70s, even Alice Cooper. Yeah. You know, they, they were very skinny guys. They were, you know, 120, 130 pounds. They were uh, you know, they were they were menacing if they were in their outfits and their makeup and Jeez, man, Glenn Danzig at that time, he legitimately looked like a guy you could paint on the side of a van, you know, holding a, killing a dragon with a sword. <laughs> That's true. You know, legitimately. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was something really scary about that guy when you saw him. He looked, he looked like he lived it. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, history and the internet has not been kind. Glenn Danzig. Yeah. You know, and we all found out that he's a very short guy and takes himself a little too seriously. Oh yeah. Various other things in his career. But man, for that, for that one small moment of time, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, before rock radio ruined mother in any sort of intensity that that would have by overplaying it in heavy rotation. Yeah. Um, you know, back in, in those early nineties, when you had mother and twist of cane and dirty black summer, Dude, I mean, he had the sound. He had the look. I mean, he he looked straight out of an EC comic or something. Yeah, you're right. I think his downfall was that a lot of people didn't really, um, for one reason or another, have access to him. Yes. And I kind of get the feeling, though, with him that he kind of liked that. Yeah. You know, he's a very dark individual as well. Um, Probably, you know, Mother is is popular. Her Black Wings, if you remember that tune, was, was... yeah, you know, it was in heavy rotation, I think, on the on the video outlets. But um, he never really—he's kind of more of a cultish character, you know, as opposed to a mainstream character. And the and the character he had the resume too, because after that you went and found out that this guy was a front man for the Misfits. Mm-hmm. And geez, man, they were at another level of just punk and and horror rock, and mm-hmm. they did the whole tribute to the to Hitchcock and all the 50s and 60s horror movies. They did that so well. Yeah. You know, they had the songs. They were, you know, in a way to me, not taking anything away from the Sex Pistols, but they were much more out there as far as punk went. Yeah. Um, so harder and scarier and not corporate and, and much more sort of underground. Yeah. You know, in the in the best possible sense of underground. Um, they had the look. They had the... They had the T-shirt. They had the songs. So for 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 Glenn to rise up out of that and, and do his own thing and have those handful of songs and have that image and have the videos and to carry off that persona as and this is a muscled up, pissed off little dude right here. <laughs> except except we didn't know he was little back then. We didn't, you know. Exactly. My gosh, he looked eight foot tall on those videos. Oh, I know. That's the so, funny thing. He totally did. Yeah, you would not cross that guy. You know, you might go over and shake Alice Cooper's hands and meet him, and, and you know he's really a nice guy. But, you know, back in that day, you would probably not approach Glenn Danzig so easily. 
No, no. And I remember seeing a clip, you know, probably about 10 years ago of, you know, to your point earlier about him taking himself too seriously. There was a bit of a backstage skirmish and somebody, you know, approached him and just laid him out with a couple punches. I don't know if you ever saw that clip. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, he uh, I I think that that kind of took the wind out of Danzig's sails quite a lot. It did. I think that probably had more to do with his that was sort of the, the, the key moment that his career took a, a different turn. Yeah. Um, you know, and I mean, in, in the guy's defense, who knows, you know, you know, you can catch anybody in a bad moment. And, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, the guy, the guy he was sort of skirmishing with was, you know, looked to be a, a, a really, really large guy. And, yeah. you know, Glenn says he slipped cause the floor was wet and I mean, who knows, you give him the benefit of the doubt, but the bottom line is, is it really screwed his career up and his image up as being this dark, dark Kung Fu, yeah. black belt yeah barbarian yeah bar- exactly yeah i mean like a true comic book barbarian yeah absolutely and and to me he pulled it you know we, we you got to mention bands like gwar uh, you know i mean to me exactly you laugh gwar <laughs> <laughs> or or you know king diamond uh you know yeah oh god laugh. yeah yeah King Diamond was never menacing or threatening or no, and you know, insane clown posse, any of those acts oh, like God, that to yeah. me are just it's more laughable than anything else. Not that that doesn't have its value. Yeah, yeah, yeah it does in a certain capacity. For me, I never really took any of that stuff seriously. You know, you exactly you you you, know, you, en- you enjoyed King Diamond and Merciful Fate for what they were. You know. Yeah. One guy that kind of scared me as we were talking about this um, that came to mind was Peter Steele from Typo Negative. Do you remember that guy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. He was a, you're he, right. He kind of had that intensity down. Uh, did they do a, like the, the cover of Summer Breeze? I think the old Seals and Crofts song. I think so. I'm not sure. Yeah, but Peter Steele, um, I, th- I think, you know... I think he's. I think he'd passed away a little while ago. He was. He, he had. Like I said, he had that intensity. He was a scary dude. I think Typo was was a step above as far as sort of being scary guys and and doing the music that seemed legitimately coming from a dark place. Yeah. Disturbed place. A malevolent. Absolutely. Place. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And that's and that's apparently not a easy thing to do. No. Because, you know? I mean, you listen to Venom and it's just. It's like, guys, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just silly, right? You can't, I mean. It's just silly, yeah. And that's the biggest joke is that, you know, they're trying to scare you with this, you know, Satanism hokiness, and it's just it's just silly. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Very much. <laughs> all right, I'm man. I'm sorry, but I, f- I feel like I'm doing all the talking here, like, and I, I feel bad about that, so. No. I'm, I'm going to kind of be quiet and let you take the ball here. No, this uh, this has been a great chat. Actually, we're at the uh, forty-five minute mark. So, oh my gosh, already! I know. Wow, it, but we can't finish. We didn't talk about Bark at the Moon. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if Ozzy was going to make his uh, way into this conversation. He had to at some point. Ozzy is in a whole different just level of it to me because I, I guess you know maybe he was a legitimately. I don't know if Ozzy was ever scary. Was no, he? Do you no, think? no, no, no. I don't think so. No, no. You know, oh. think about think about the Speak of the Devil cover, and you think you know when you look at it quickly, like oh, there's a guy with fangs, but but look, he has cranberry jelly coming out of his mouth. <laughs> it's almost it's, like he intended to be cartoonish, you know. 
It's so not scary. No, it's not. It's just goofy. Like, it's funny. Yeah. Because you just think Ozzy's wasted, and he thinks that's funny. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think it took long into that career to figure out that he was really sort of this bumbling, very non-threatening, very lovable guy. Very, Um, yes. But but you wouldn't want him to be anything else than that. Exactly. You know, in, in in the Legion of Halloween songs, you know, Bark at the Moon, which is... I don't think is a great Aussie song. No. <laughs> um, it's it's just it's great in its ridiculousness and in in the werewolf costume that he puts on. And oh yeah. He, he, uh, the other side of Danzig, not a guy who ever really took himself seriously. Oh no, no, exactly. And that's I think that that's what everybody loved about Ozzy. And and saying that as you as you say that he's lovable is probably the best descriptor that you could offer because that's exactly what he was. He was just that kind of guy that you wanted at the party because he was a lovable drunk and he would make you laugh with his antics and you know things that he said. He wasn't scary at all. He was just a a funny you know goofy guy. Yeah, and a very sweet guy. Oh and, yeah. And, and he was so much that that he just you couldn't even in the eighties I think everybody had kind of figured that out. Yeah, definitely. but you know, interestingly enough, if you want to talk about scary, I mean, the original Black Sabbath song is a legitimately scary song. The Devil's Tritone. Uh, yeah, legitimately unnerving. Yeah. Um, and and to me, Ozzy is at at his I don't know if you'd say scary, but at his most disturbing on, you know, songs like Solitude. Yeah. Uh, Planet Caravan. Oh yeah, love yeah. that song. Yeah, that to me is is if you're looking for sort of more of a legitimate Alfred Hitchcock sort of you know Black Sabbath Halloween connection, that's where you go to. You go to those Sabbath songs. I fully and agree. You go to that. You go to that sort of very coked out heroin, lonely, sad, upset, detached, Aussie. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, those songs, for me, you know, people say, well, Black Sabbath is scary because they're heavy. You know, you made a really good point, um, you know, when you were on the show last time about the reason, you know, Black Sabbath really was scary was because of the emotionality that they brought, not not necessarily, you know, the, yeah. the heaviness that they that they provided was due to that emotional heaviness, not because of a, you know, a Gibson through a Marshall kind of thing. Absolutely, yeah. It's not about it. That, that's I think where so many of the metal acts lost that is they thought heavy was double bass drums and, and let's play louder and, and mm-hmm. let's more distortion pedals, and that's not what heavy is. And I don't think that's why any band can compare with the weight of classic Sabbath is because classic Sabbath was heavy because of it was emotionally heavy. Yeah. You know, it was there. Those guys, it came from a very real place for those guys. Yeah. And the, the scariest songs for me are songs like planet caravan because they're, they're, they're so far away and detached, you know, like listening to planet caravan. And I think that Ozzy sings through like a Leslie speaker and distorts his voice, whatever, but it kind of sounds like, like you're underwater listening to that, you know. It's just it's it's a it's it's very ethereal and and uh, and and unsettling almost. I think we talked about this a bit on the, the last time I was on your show, but you know, I, even as a as a kid, you know, eight nine years old listening to Sabbath, I can remember listening to like Solitude mm-hmm. from Master of Reality and very much getting that this guy was for real. Yep. You know, this, this was something, this was, he was coming from a very real place. Mm-hmm. You know, I think regardless of what age you are, that's, you kind of know, you, you connect with that. So, and I, and I think that's Sabbath's legacy, you know. 
I agree. Is that heaviness? And and since they've been around so long, you know, we all get to see that. You know, it's part of the fun of Halloween. I, I saw a thing the other day that said, you know, Halloween is. You know, I say America, and you're in Canada. I don't know about Canada, but it said Amer- Halloween is America's favorite holiday. Really? Yeah. You know, it's really kind of the only holiday that's all about fun. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, there's not the big sort of forced family get-togethers that are, can be awkward and <laughs> sort of em- emotionally difficult. Yeah. You know, it doesn't carry that sort of of weight that Thanksgiving and, and Christmas might have, where you sort of take account of your life and all the your failures and the you know, your dreams that didn't come true. And mm-hmm. Halloween is just, it's light and it's fun. Nobody takes off of work or school. It's its dressing up. And, you know, I think ultimately if we talk about, you know, rock, music, metal, and, and, you know, that that's always sort of been linked to Halloween because it's of its darkness of it. But ultimately you have to say it's, it's the fun part of it too, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, whether it's Ozzy in, in his despair or his addiction or Manson in his addiction and, and his you know, loneliness or, or, you know, his, his desperation. There is another side of that that is very much fun. And it's about those appearances and it's about becoming a character. You know, all of those guys became a character. Yeah. Ozzy and, and Gene and Ace Fraley and, and Alice Cooper and, and Rob Zombie. It was all about playing a character that was part of themselves. You know, it wasn't like they were just totally being inauthentic. That character was who they were, but it was sort of an exaggerated part of themselves. Yeah. You know, not to go all psychological here, but, you know, you and I are both from that background. And I think that's why we all relate to it, because we can all relate to playing a character that is a part of ourselves. Mm-hmm. Well and, said. And, and, and yeah, well, and, and time has sort of borne that out to where we see most of these guys. Um, you know, we, we've seen what they really are. We've seen that Ozzy's really a family man and, and he's a sweet guy. We see that. You know that that Gene and and Paul and Ace and you know these guys are in their 60s now and and they're they're sort of settled and and they're articulate and they're smart and they can be sweet and mm-hmm. and you know the culture that we grew up in even in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s you know that that tried to demonize these guys and and make them you know sort of the bane of of existence and parents and horrible things that kids should not listen to which made us want to listen to it that much more. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, how great that we all grow up to see kind of behind the mask and behind the characters to see the other sides of these guys and, and find out that they're, you know, in some ways, people just like we are with the same struggles, yeah. that, you know, that we got. Yeah, exactly. So, man, I didn't mean to go that deep. Sorry, no, it's Halloween. <laughs> no, you know, I, I think it's fantastic that, that you said that. I think that's a perfect summation to yeah. the conversation that we're having. It, very well said once again, very articulate. I love it, Jamie. I couldn't have said that better myself. I am, you know, appreciative of the fact that we did get to find out that, you know, guys like Alice Cooper, who were ridiculous alcoholics at their lowest, you know, took off their masks and became scratch golfers, you know, and and good people. So, you know, you always hope there's a happy ending and and it's nice to to be able to have grown to see that for sure. Yes, I appreciate that they're still here and that they are still working to, you know, to give us what we love and that, that... as the years have passed and as they have matured, they have become more transparent to show their humanness. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe in a way that's the sort of the most authentically scary thing that we can all do is try to get through this thing called life and figure out who we are and who we're not. Who, who would have guessed this show would have had such a philosophical bend? <laughs> ah, dude, you knew we would go there, so. <laughs> yeah, I kind of did. <laughs> you knew it would take that direction, so. 
Happy Halloween. <laughs> Happy Halloween to you, my friend. <laughs> oh, my brother, it's always a pleasure, and I'm so glad to see that your show has taken off. Man, you know, love that you're having Def Leppard and Twisted Sister and... and, and Jamie, thank you. It's always such a pleasure to have you on the show. You're a great guy. You're a fantastic writer, and we always have great chats. So thank you very much for your time today. Oh, brother, the, the honor is all mine, and I appreciate your time very much. Appreciate you having me. All right, my man. Okay, this has been No Sleep Till Sudbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Jamie Blaine. Happy Halloween, everybody. Take good care. Till next time. <laughs> Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide. 